Welcome to Wild Trekker. I'm George Toombs here in Montreal, and this is the 35th episode. Wild Trekker is a series of podcasts, a writer's notebook, audio chapters from ongoing works, soundscapes, adventures, interviews with fascinating people, reflections, original radio plays, reportage, stories behind stories, jam sessions, and more. Wild Trekker is a fluid kind of sound art. I hope you enjoy it. This is the seventh in a seven-part series of Wild Trekker podcasts on the human machine. And by the way, it's largely derived from my doctoral dissertation at McGill University in the history and philosophy of science. In this account of the human machine, Paul-Henri Dietrich Dolbach remains an enigmatic figure. Born in Edesheim near Landau, he becomes a naturalized French citizen living in a palatial hôtel particulier in Paris. He acts as an intellectual bridge between German science and the French Enlightenment. He translates the original findings of German mineralogy and geology into French. He therefore serves as a vector of new ideas in France. From an uncle, he inherits the title of baron and a large private fortune besides, which give him not only a comfortable social status during the Ancien Régime, but also the financial means to gather around him a tightly knit society of men and women devoted to letters and free thought. The fact that the shadowy Dolbach plays a key role in the Enlightenment alongside the better-known figure of Diderot only serves to make him more enigmatic. The philosophes are an informal, rather secretive network, and as Hegel points out, Dolbach is the central figure of this network of French Enlightenment philosophers. Montesquieu, d'Alembert, Rousseau were for a time in his circle. Now, no single publishing venture is more central to the Enlightenment program of cultural, religious, social, and political reform than the Encyclopedia, l'Encyclopédie des sciences, des arts, et des métiers. Alain Ponce has written that the Encyclopédie is, for the man of the 18th century, what cathedrals had been for the man of the Middle Ages, the faithful mirror of his being, the witness, the profession of faith, the collective masterpiece in which is expressed his vision of the world, a conception of the relations of man with God, with nature, and with other men. And whereas God gave to older theological and metaphysical constructions all their meaning, now the object of learning is the concrete world, 
nature and man, a biological and social being, as he appears to reason and not to faith. This publishing enterprise is revolutionary, and it's of international significance. The Encyclopédistes courageously support the enterprise despite threats of imprisonment, galley slavery, and even the death penalty, as well as censorship within France and Pope Clement XIII's condemnation of their work. From a strategic point of view, Dolbach quietly promotes the Encyclopédie, contributing some 375 or 376 articles, which are only signed starting with Volume 3 in 1753, and he writes them on a wide range of subjects, from science to political representatives, priests, and theocracy. These articles for the Encyclopédie give an indication of Dolbach's two writing styles, the first being scientific, and I guess we could say evidence-based, the second didactic and violently anti-clerical. In addition, Dolbach is prepared to subsidize publication abroad, if need be, out of his large personal fortune. Although Dolbach comes into the world and dies a Catholic, he promotes atheism, materialism, and the idea of the human machine through a series of anonymous, clandestine works, some of which he attributes to friends who have conveniently died by the time of publication. Some of the habitués at his literary salon are well aware of this authorship, but they decline ever to betray his confidence. These 11 works, from Le Christianisme dévoilé, published in 1767, to Système de la Nature in 1770, Système Social three years later, La Morale Universelle three years after that, and Histoire Critique de Jésus-Christ, published in 1778, to name a few, these works are dry, declamatory, and repetitive expositions of natural, social, and moral systems based on pure abstractions. They present the human being as a machine, devoid of free will, and causality as mere relationships of motion. In a sense, Dolbach is heir to the entire mechanical tradition I've described in the other six episodes of this series of podcasts on the human machine. Dolbach's work is the culmination of a particular interpretation of mechanism, the purely materialist one, although the model of mechanism has by now pervaded the scientific world in the domains of the morphology of the universe, the understanding of the terrestrial globe, the transformations of matter and force, and the systematization of biology. While much modern science is materialistic, some of Dolbach's materialism is considered unscientific today. For example, his belief with Georg Ernst Stahl in the existence of igneous fluid in the body. In these works, Dolbach characterizes religion as superstitious, harmful, useless, and extravagant, manipulated by a cunning, self-interested, and hypocritical priesthood, and fobbed off on a credulous, ignorant public. Much as the works bear witness to a fanatical desire to destroy religion, they are sweetly sentimental in their praise of atheism and materialism. It's as if he compares the worst of religion with the best of atheism, in an idealized, condescending way, musing in the bosom of aristocratic luxury on the benefit 
benefits for the unwashed masses out there of education, social reform, philanthropy, generosity, and happiness. Dolbach has an aristocratic disdain for institutions, and the solutions he proposes, the temple of nature, the exercise of reason, are mannered and genteel. How can the tone of Dobach's writings on religion be explained? He may have come to doubt Holy Scripture while studying geology, but that still doesn't account for the particular virulence of his attacks on religion. His main objection to the existence of God is that the divinity can't freely create marvelous animals that are destined to perish and decay. Otherwise, God would be neither free nor omnipotent. Recent scholarship on France under the Ancien Régime notes a distinction between the Catholic religion and clericalism. But, I would like to note, Dolbach is violently opposed to both. He's against any form of faith or religion, as is shown by vitriolic passages about Jews and Christians in his work Le Christianisme dévoilé. His dogmatic attacks on faith and religion can be taken as a measure of the force that Christian dogma still exerts on society. Dolbach believes that primitive societies are dominated by fear, which provides the impulse to explain the mysterious, unpredictable forces of nature in terms of superstitious religion. In this respect, he's part of an age-old tradition of materialism, stretching from Lucretius at least to Hobbes, that associates fear and superstition. It's been claimed that Dolbach exaggerates the effects of this fear, since geological time has only just begun to diverge from biblical time, and telescopes natural catastrophes such as the flood into a short time frame, which has proved traumatic for primitive peoples. But I find this is to excuse Dolbach. During the Enlightenment, so-called primitive societies are not universally considered to be fear-ridden and superstitious. For example, in 1724, the Jesuit missionary Joseph-François Lafitteau writes Mœurs des Sauvages Américains, drawing a favorable comparison between the Iroquois of Canada, living right next to Montreal, and the noblest virtues of antiquity. Lafitteau even believes the Iroquois to be remotely of Greek origin. Then, in 1748, Montesquieu publishes L'Esprit des Lois, which articulates an early form of sociological relativism, where political regimes are concerned. For Montesquieu, religion is one of the principles that forms the general spirit, the mores and the manners of a nation. Variations between political regimes can be explained by differences in the principles of government, the simplicity of civil and criminal laws, sumptuary laws and the condition of women, the nature of the climate, and the general spirit of the society. 
1755, Jean-Jacques Rousseau idealizes so-called primitive societies in his Discours sur l'origine de l'inégalité, in which he portrays the happy innocence of the original state of nature, contrasting it with humanity's ineluctable decline into vice and corruption as it approaches contemporary civilization. So these are all examples to suggest that the Enlightenment does not hammer so-called primitive societies as living in fear and superstition. Dobach plays a key role during the Enlightenment and shares the preoccupations of his contemporaries, but his ideas, personality, and writing style seem strangely out of place. In the Dictionnaire Philosophique, Voltaire professes to admire him while mocking his disbelief in God, but then Voltaire mocks everybody. Rousseau devotes scathing passages to him in his confessions, denouncing the Couterie d'Olbachique, I guess you could say the Dolbach clique or gang, and categorizing the Baron as a schemer, hypocrite, persecutor, and tormentor who buys his way into the company of decent people. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe writes that he had hoped to find in Système de la Nature something of nature, our idol. But how hollow and empty did we feel in this melancholy atheistical half-light, in which earth vanished with all its images, heaven with all its stars. Well, I'd like to ask why Dolbach's ideas, personality, and writing style seem somewhat out of place in this century. First, there's a stylistic issue. His writings lack all charm in a century that puts great stock in literary eloquence. Hegel later takes a convenient way out in noting that the Système de la Nature, or System of Nature, is not a French book, for vivacity is lacking and the mode of presentation is dull. Second, there's the framework issue. In my view, Dolbach's singularity doesn't lie in his German background or his being an 18th century philosophe. Instead, he's a systems builder with a destructive agenda. As such, he takes a rational principle as a point of departure and laboriously and inexorably builds up an edifice of reason from that single principle. By this means, he develops an atheist and materialist metaphysic based on abstract principles amounting to a counter-dogma which can serve as a substitute or replacement for 17th century Christian metaphysical systems. Dolbach is very much in reaction to revealed religion, the weight of centuries of theology and Christian metaphysics, and the power of the church as an institution. And this helps to explain why his works are so provocative and violent. Unlike La Maîtrie, Dolbach isn't reacting to individuals. He's reacting to systems of teleology, metaphysics, and theology. During the 17th century, Descartes was under considerable pressure to shield from the church's scrutiny and wrath those of his works which challenged religious orthodoxy directly. 
Gassendi, for his part, accommodated materialism and Christian orthodoxy. During the French Enlightenment, deism and theism offer many philosophers a way to explore materialism while always keeping in reserve the fallback position that their exploration doesn't contradict faith in God. La Maîtrie is openly a materialist. It's unusual for a French Enlightenment philosopher like Dolbach to be so blunt in his atheism. He unambiguously uses the principle of atheism as a counter-dogma in an attempt to wrench materialism away from any purported relationship with the divine or the spiritual. While he considers that institutions corrupt humanity, he believes that a purely material nature would teach humanity the lessons of natural morality, which boils down to self-preservation and the quest for happiness. There's nothing romanticized in his appreciation for nature. On the contrary, he sees nature in cold and highly abstract terms as the sum total of matter and the energy inherent in matter as a system whose motions, whether in the universe or in humans themselves, determine the course of events. Needless to say, in this purely material, godless universe, where the motions of matter determine everything that man is, experiences, and can ever become, there is no place whatever for some of the interpretations of the human machine I've mentioned so far. Man in God's image and likeness, man as microcosm, and even man as self-mastering individual. These concepts simply have no meaning for Dolbach. In The System of Nature, or The Laws of the Moral and Physical World, I find the most mature and indeed the most complete materialist account of the human machine. Dolbach is unlike any of the other authors I've examined so far in this series. He lacks Leonardo, the engineer artist's fascination for mechanical details. He doesn't share Vesalius's interest in the nature, intricate series, distribution, construction, harmony, and arrangement of the body's machine-like organs. He's unconcerned with Harvey's discovery of the mechanical motion of the heart and the circulation of the blood. He shows nothing but contempt for Descartes' compromise over dualism and his distinction between humans and animals. Dobach betrays none of the anxiety which characterizes the political writings of Hobbes. He doesn't rely, as Leibniz did, on fantastic metaphysical notions to glue together the fragments of a philosophical system and his work is more systematic than La Maîtrise Machine Man. To understand Dobach's idea of the human machine, it's important to evoke the abstract principles on which he builds up his logical edifice. The first of these principles is atheism. He writes in System of Nature as follows. What is an atheist? He's a man who destroys chimeras prejudicial to the human species in order to reconduct men back to nature, to experience, and to reason. An atheist is a thinker who, 
having meditated upon matter, its energy, its properties, and its modes of acting, has no occasion, in order to explain the phenomena of the universe and the operations of nature, to invent ideal powers, imaginary intelligences, beings of the imagination, who, far from making him understand this nature better, do no more than render it capricious, inexplicable, unintelligible, and useless to the happiness of mankind. Moreover, Dolbach writes, atheism, if well understood, is founded upon nature and reason, which never will, like religion, either justify or expiate the crimes of the wicked. Well, the second of the principles that Dolbach uses as a foundation for his materialism is that nature should not be personified as the ancients had done. It can only be explained on rational grounds as the necessary character of the motions of matter. A third principle, closely related to the second, is to deny the teleological view from Plato through Aristotle, Galen, Aquinas, and early modern philosophers from Descartes to Leibniz, according to which there is any design or purpose in the ordering of nature. fourth principle on which Dolbach founds his system is that nature is the great whole that results from the assemblage of matter under its various combinations with that diversity of motions which the universe offers to our view. It is thus that man is, as a whole, the result of a certain combination of matter endowed with peculiar properties, competent to give, capable of receiving certain impulses, the arrangement of which is called organization, of which the essence is to feel, to think, to act, to move, after a manner distinguished from other beings with which he can be compared. A fifth principle, which is developed more fully in Morale Universelle, is that the two motivations of man in nature are his own self-conservation and the desire for happiness. Well, from the 21st century perspective we have nowadays, there seems to be a leap here from a purely material world to a system of morality based on nature's immutable laws. But that's because Dolbach's vision of atheism is essentially moral. He believes that discerning the laws of nature through experience and reason, that is, the methods of natural philosophy, is an emancipating activity that will free humanity from corruption, vice, and superstition. In other words, Dolbach claims a better understanding of nature will improve morality, which can only rightly be understood by atheists who hold that view because they're moral. This argument for me is circular. 
This circular string of principles establishes a godless universe where atheism, rightly understood, will lead to greater justice in society, where nature is neither personified nor the fulfillment of any divine master plan, where the human being is essentially matter in motion and as part of nature motivated by his or her own self-conservation and the desire for happiness. But in this respect, Dolbach has departed from his Enlightenment contemporaries in daring to spell out a coherent atheist system. In his Encyclopédie article on atomism, for example, Diderot denounces the absurdity of classical atomism while implying that his sympathies actually lie with it. On the basis of these five principles, I shall restate the main argument of the system of nature, or at least that part of it which concerns the study of the human machine. Man feeds himself with conjectures rather than experience and has ended up neglecting the use of his own reason. In this respect, it's interesting to note, Dolbach's man of nature is devoted to self-emancipation through the exercise of reason, quite unlike Rousseau's natural man, who is solitary and blissfully indifferent to knowledge. The human being is the work of nature and subject to her laws, from which he cannot free himself. The human being is, moreover, a purely physical being and ought, therefore, to search for truth in physics and experience. Experience and a reasoned contemplation of the universe reveal to us nothing but matter in motion. Motion is the motive principle of all existence, connecting our organs to external and internal objects. Matter has always been in motion, and the changes, forms, and modifications of matter alone proceed from motion. Every body in the universe is in motion, and every being is subject to specific laws of motion, such as attraction, repulsion, and necessity. Indeed, as Dobach says, necessity is the infallible and constant tie of causes to their effects. And this irresistible power, universal necessity, is only a consequence of the nature of things, in virtue of which the whole acts by immutable laws. The human mind acquires the idea of order by means of its perception of the regular motions of nature. Man, an organized whole, composed of different matters, which act according to their respective properties, is always subject to necessity. Man is a product of nature, an organized whole of matter and motion, and thus has none of the spiritual, immaterial attributes, such as a soul joined to his body, the existence of which philosophers and theologians have long assumed. Thank <laughs> you.
The human being is a machine, and every machine is valuable when it performs well the functions to which it is destined. Nature is but a machine, of which the human species makes a part. As a result, for Dolbach, morality should be judged not in the light of vain assumptions about the existence of God and his divine commands, nor even on the basis of religious opinions, but by means of utility within a purely material universe governed by natural laws. The metaphor of the human machine is particularly helpful to Dolbach. It provides him with a rational model for the proper organization and functioning of matter, a reductionist image which can be used to explain any human thought or feeling, whether it be the product of an orderly mechanism or of confusion in the machine, and a utilitarian justification for his determinist view that universal necessity is only a consequence of the nature of things, in virtue of which the whole acts by immutable laws. We shouldn't forget that Dolbach considers that utility ought to be the only standard of the judgment of man. Dolbach makes three different uses of the metaphor of the human machine. First, the metaphor provides a rational model. In previous centuries, the metaphor of the human machine had gone hand in hand with the doctrine of man in God's image. By 1770, when Dolbach publishes System of Nature, there's no compelling need to expose and defend the machine-like nature of man. This idea has become detached from religion and can even be used as a weapon in the battle against what he considers to be the superstitious convention that humans are in God's image. As Dolbach puts it, man, feeling within himself a concealed force that insensibly produced action, that imperceptibly gave direction to the motion of his machine, believed that the entire of whose energies he's ignorant, with whose modes of acting he's unacquainted, owed its motion to an agent analogous to his own soul, who acted upon the great macrocosm in the same manner that this soul acted upon his body. Man, having supposed himself double, made nature double also. In other words, once man's nature is no longer seen as dual, man's soul no longer corresponds to the spiritual being of God, and the machine model no longer furnishes man with an image of rationality, that is, the microcosm corresponding to the rational design and purpose, or macrocosm, of God the Creator. Instead, the machine-like nature of man, matter in motion, is set in a universe in perpetual motion, which itself is held up as a proof that there has never been a creator. And where the human heart had been considered a labyrinth, the machine model, in all its admirable simplicity, is not just a description of mankind, it has become, for Dolbach, a prescription of what humans should become. Second, the metaphor serves as a reductionist image. The metaphor of the human machine allows Dolbach to reduce thoughts, feelings, and the very existence of man to machine-like functions. For example, 
It's by no means astonishing, he says, that the brain should be necessarily warned of the shocks, of the impediments, of the changes that may happen to so complicated a machine as the human body, in which all the parts are contiguous to the brain, to a whole in which all the sensible parts concentrate themselves in the brain and are, by their essence, in a continual state of action and reaction. The phenomena of physical and moral habit are modified exactly in the same manner as the body, and can therefore be explained by a pure mechanism. Finally, the disordered motion within man can be explained as a confusion in the machine. Dobak writes, those dreams that are troublesome, extravagant, whimsical, or unconnected are commonly the effect of some confusion in his machine, such as painful indigestion, an overheated blood, a prejudicial fermentation, etc. These material causes excite in his body a disordered motion, which precludes the brain from being modified in the same manner it was on the day before. Although Dolbach doesn't devote much of system of nature to a justification of the machine model, he's well aware that some people will find his model overly reductionist. And the third use Dolbach puts the metaphor to is that it provides a utilitarian justification. And here Dolbach reaches back to the clock-like universe to turn the first machine metaphor on its head. The image of the clock appears in system of nature in a negative sense. Dolbach writes, an organized being may be compared to a clock, which, once broken, is no longer suitable to the use for which it was designed. To say that the soul shall feel, shall think, shall enjoy, shall suffer after the death of the body is to pretend that a clock shivered into a thousand pieces will continue to strike the hour and have the faculty of marking the progress of time. In Dolbach's philosophy, the human being is compared to a clock not because of the brilliant artistry of nature or of the knowable and wondrous craftsmanship of God, but as an indication that the human being is constrained by natural laws and cannot strike the hour and mark the progress of time, cannot, in other words, function in an orderly fashion unless that machine observes natural laws. The logical consequences of Dolbach's view are clear. God does not exist. Nature must not, therefore, be personified 
and there is no master plan in the universe. Once nature is identified with necessity and humans are subject to that necessity, then humans are deprived of liberty, left to dwell in an ephemeral universe of matter in constant motion where they will be of greater or less utility. Human beings are the work of nature. They exist in nature and they are subject to her laws. Human beings cannot deliver themselves from those laws, nor can they step beyond them, even in thought. Domach is not content to describe the mechanical workings of a deterministic materialism. He also seeks to develop a system of utilitarian ethics on materialist principles. He's true to the Enlightenment's faith in reform by means of education, and so Dobach believes that atheism has to be inculcated by promoting those natural virtues identified by and deemed useful to the state. Dobach writes, we boldly assert that a society of atheists, destitute of all religion, governed by wholesome laws, formed by a good education, invited to virtue by recompenses, deterred from crime by equitable punishments, and disentangled from illusions, falsehoods, and chimeras, would be infinitely more honest and more virtuous than those religious societies in which everything conspires to intoxicate the mind and to corrupt the heart. I wonder whether Dobak's view of the human machine has had much impact on the subsequent history of philosophy. The Marquis de Sade takes to the combination of atheism and materialism in Dobak. One of the unanticipated offshoots of this philosophical position is Sade's extravagant nihilism. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, writing in The Holy Family, consider Dolbach worthy of mention as a revolutionary bourgeois and materialist philosopher who's hostile to religious doctrines. G. V. Plichanov devotes considerably more attention to Dolbach in his Essays in the History of Materialism. Plichanov sees Dolbach as a theoretician of the bourgeoisie engaged in a struggle against the institutions of the Ancien Régime and inspired by an uncompromising hatred for despotism. If there's a flaw in Dolbach's work, Plichanov considers, it is that he knows nothing of evolution and therefore lacks a dialectical method accounting for changes in nature. Dolbach's faith in the limpid justice of a future atheist state seems naive to us today. From the secure and comfortable setting of his Hôtel Particulier, Dolbach could not have imagined how atheism could be made into a state religion, whether during the French Revolution or under communism, and how materialism would be used to justify labor camps, mass exploitation, and mass murder. Yet his hatred of despotism distinguishes him from later totalitarian materialists such as Marx and Plikhanov. More influential than Dobach's atheism, surely, is the utilitarian theory of natural rights, which he derives from nature herself. This theory proves of importance during the French Revolution and since then. 
Dolbach's advocacy of a natural morality based on abstract principles, and his preference that the state, rather than the church, should be the moral educator of the people, is absorbed into English utilitarianism and subsequently into Marxism. And now I would like to come to something I find a paradox or a contradiction in Dobach. He claims in System of Nature to take an uncompromising position in denying the existence of God. He makes atheism the cornerstone of his philosophy. Yet, in considering the summary of System of Nature, I can't help noting that he's already deifying nature, destroying the foundations of religion only to erect a new temple of reason on its ruins. He writes, the morality of nature is the only religion which her interpreter offers to his fellow citizens, to nations, to the human species, to future races, weaned from those prejudices which have frequently disturbed the felicity of their ancestors. The friend of mankind cannot be the friend of God, who at all times has been a real scourge to the earth. The apostle of nature will not be the instrument of deceitful chimeras by which this world is made only an abode of illusions. The adorer of truth will not compromise with falsehood. He will make no covenant with error. Conscious, it must always be fatal to mortals. He knows that the happiness of the human race imperiously exacts that the dark and steady edifice of superstition should be raised to its foundations in order to elevate on its ruins a temple to nature suitable to peace. Well, I find this almost pantheistic statement to be truly astonishing, considering that Dolbach believes that religion renders man a useless being, makes him an abject slave, causes him to tremble under the terrors, or else turns him into a furious fanatic who is at once cruel, intolerant, and inhuman. Remember that the philosopher Charles Taylor coined the phrase control freakery when thinking of Hobbes's mechanistic universe. I think we should call the deification of nature Dolbach's paradox. There, I've coined a phrase. Well, this brings to an end the seven-part series of Wild Trekker podcasts I've devoted to the human machine. If you would like to know more about my ongoing creative works from books, translations, films, and blogs to Wild Trekker, check out my author's website at www.evidencia.net. And Evidencia is spelled with a letter N as in November, and also the letter T, not C, but T, because Evidencia is the Latin word for evidence, evidence which has proven so important since the beginning of the scientific revolution. The opening theme at the beginning of each Wild Trekker podcast is sung by Marie Frenette, with me accompanying her on the piano. Now here's Marie Frenette singing the closing theme of Wild Trekker, accompanied by Pascal Desmeaux on the guitar. Let's get together soon. This Wild Trekker episode is copyright 2021. George Toombs. All rights reserved. <laughs>